Good morning. Uh, usually I would wait for you guys to say good morning back. I'm going to assume you have. If we haven't met yet, my name is Art Pereira. I'm the director of student ministries here at Hope. I'm also usually the laugh track on our live stream when Tyler and Jeff are preaching. So you normally don't get to hear my, uh, well, see my face, but you do hear my guffaws. So uh, there's that. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Acts 23. Acts, also called Acts of the Apostles, is an account of God using the apostles to spread his church shortly after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. You might have noticed that the apostles, as we've been reading, face great trials and, and tribulations and just hardship as they spread the gospel, but that God continues to do really good work. This has been a comfort to me recently, that God continues to do extraordinary things in difficult seasons through faithful followers. It's been a comfort to me because this has been a hard season for all of us. I was telling a friend this week that I am so thankful that one of the last things I did before all this started was use up all my airline miles. I was able to fly out to Arizona and California just like a few days before a stay-at-home order got called. And while I was in Phoenix, I went on this great hike, a beautiful like red rock hike with some of my favorite features, really good views, an interesting ascent. And I went by myself and I was taking my time and thought after about an hour and a half I was getting to the top, only to top out and realize there was a whole lot more to go. In front of me was this really rocky, risky ridge hike. So on either side, it just plummeted. The top was so far up still that people looked like tiny, colorful little specks. And that beautiful red rock that I was appreciating before now looked like beautiful red graveyard if I fell on either side. And so it's not just a hike now, now it's a scramble. Now you're using your arms and you're, you're trying to climb up these giant boulders and I'm getting kind of nervous and thankfully I, I used to rock climb and some of my rock climbing training kicked in and uh, I remember that in these moments, posture and positioning are everything. Now how close my backpack was, now I had to tighten it up, where my hands would go, where I would put my foot, not just to put weight on it, but to balance myself out. My posture and position we're going to determine if I was going to survive the next few feet. As we pick up in Acts 23, we're going to find that the positioning of our hearts really matters. We find Paul in a difficult situation. He's been brought before the chief priests and the council, essentially the, the local religious leaders, higher authorities, to defend himself. Once again, Paul is under attack for teaching the gospel. This morning in Acts 23, we're going to be looking at this conversation between them and how posture mattered. So we're going to be reading from Acts 23, verses 1 through 11. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
And when he had said, said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in a confusing, difficult, fearful time, your word is true and solid for us. That you are still willing to graciously teach us, to graciously guide us, to graciously instruct us, to bring us all into all hope and light. We ask that as we open your word today, that you would work on our hearts, that you would convict us, encourage us, and inspire us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's a question I've been asking myself since this all started, and I've been looking to Scripture for the answer. I've been talking with friends. What does it look like to be faithful in a difficult season? I've been really encouraged by this study of Acts because in Acts, we see the disciples facing really difficult seasons. We also see them following God. We see their faithfulness. We see their hope. And more than anything, we see God working to grow his church. God is using Paul here to preach the good news in all sorts of places. Today, this council is given an opportunity to experience the very work of God directly in front of them. But their posture gets in the way. Today we're going to look at three postures that we can have towards the work of God. And we're going to start with the posture of gripping on to our own agenda. When I was in high school, I took a sociology class, and in one particular class we were discussing immigration. Now, I grew up in Long Valley, and if you don't know anything about that area, there weren't that many immigrants. I wasn't the only one, but I think I was the only one in the class. And about halfway through the class, this guy next to me kind of leans in and mutters, what I'm guessing he meant as a joke. I don't really remember what he said. I just remember it was deeply disparaging of immigrants. And for a second, I'm confused, thinking this guy's trying to insult me in the middle of class. But from the look on his face, I realized he thinks I'm in on the joke. He doesn't realize I'm an immigrant. And I'm not usually very smooth in these moments. Uh, but something came over me, and I, I gave him a little smile, and I, I leaned in really conspiratorially. And I said, hey, just so I'm clear, are, are you insulting me or my parents? Either one works. It's just, I just want to know. And he flinched back in shock and had no clue what to say. Right? He thought I was in on the joke. See, he was so caught up in what he thought, what he wanted to say, the joke he wanted to make, that he didn't see the person sitting directly in front of him. It wasn't really connected to what was happening there. And that's what's happening here. You see, Ananias, this high priest, doesn't see Paul for who he is, but for a scoundrel, for a troublemaker. 
Worse yet, he's not even seeing God for who he is, God for the work that he is doing right in front of him. And Ananias is so caught up in what he thinks needs to happen, what he wants to say, what he is gripping onto, that he misses out on the work of God directly in front of him. As the high priest, he would believe himself to be on the moral high ground. So when Paul stands before him and tries to testify to Christ, Ananias totally misses the gospel because he's so caught up in his own righteousness. He orders Paul uh, slapped in the mouth before he can say anything. Now this moment's kind of like shocking, right? You flinch and go, you can't do that. But he misses the very work of God unfolding before him because he's too busy gripping on to his own agenda, gripping on to what he thinks and what he wants to be said there. In Acts 23, 1-3, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Before Paul can say anything else, he silences him. And this is what happens when we approach God by gripping our own agenda. It's possible to hold so tightly to what we want for ourselves and others that we miss out entirely on what God is doing in front of us. This high priest was so concerned with his own goals that he won't even hear Paul out. He's been so focused on justifying himself through his actions that as Paul would offer him freedom and the very fulfillment he's looking for, he's gripping so hard onto his own self-righteousness and good works, he misses out on it. His hands are already so full there's nothing that he would allow God to give him. And if we're honest, we, we do this. We grip on to our own agendas. We clutch on to our own biases, our own agendas. We ignore what God is doing right in front of us. It, it might happen when we're given an opportunity to love someone, but they've heard us before, so we skip out on that one. We ignore it. We walk right by. We look the other way. It might happen when, when you're reading your Bible or when you're sitting in church and something makes you uncomfortable. Something starts to tug at you. And at first you're kind of smugly think, sitting there thinking, oh, my wife better be paying attention to what Jeff's saying, right? And then all of a sudden you realize that the, what Jeff's saying applies to you. And all of a sudden we want to we hold on to our own desires and views. The work of God happening before us, happening in us, and we'll have our clenched hands. I think this tendency of gripping our own agendas, at least in my life, reveals how little we trust that what God has for us is good. I'm so scared to give up what I'm holding on to because what, what he's doing, what he wants, couldn't possibly be better than the plans I've made. Right? But maybe if we can trust that what God wants is better, that what he's doing in front of us is good, we can loosen our grip. Maybe if we could let go and, and follow, we would find that the work of God is rich and good. You know, certainly I think that Ananias would have found joy if he gave himself to Christ's goodness instead of his own. Certainly I think that what Paul was offering was what they were all looking for. They just didn't know it yet. 
But gripping onto their own agendas, they double down. They defend themselves against him. They shut him down. So we see this posture of gripping our own agenda. Next, we see a posture of defense of our cultural affiliations. I know that's a mouthful. But this posture is one that we see really clearly in this passage, and if I'm honest, I see a lot of it in our world right now. So we're going to unpack this for a bit. In verse 6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, what Paul understood going in here is the tension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He'd grown up in this religious climate, this political climate. He was a member of the Pharisees, in fact. And as the passage starts to explain, the Pharisees and Sadducees were both sects of the Jewish faith with some really important differences. The most important being that the Sadducees did not believe in spirits or the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees did. So Paul decides to take advantage of this and he he tells them some true statements. Firstly, that he's a Pharisee. You know, hey, I'm, I'm one of you. And secondly, that he believes in the resurrection the very thing these two groups are fighting over. And instantly, mayhem breaks out. Now, if they would pay attention, if they would open up to what Paul is doing, to what God is doing in front of them, they would find that the resurrection that Paul is talking about is the very hope for each of them. And the exact hope that the Jewish faith had spent centuries waiting for. But we don't even get that far because instantly the two groups start arguing. It's a little bit like Thanksgiving during an election year. No one can agree, everyone's stressed out, and before you get to dessert, everyone's angry. You know, There's these, these two waging opinions, and people are just ready to fight. The groups we identify ourselves with, whether they're political or religious or ethnic, they can become walls and fortresses for us. We can live in defense of our cultural affiliations rather than to engage in the work of God. In my experience, I've been shocked how much easier it is to be loyal to an idea than to the person right in front of me. I was reminded of this really recently in a way that bears pretty much no weight whatsoever. Uh, I have this good friend, Nick, and I spend quite a bit of time with him. And Nick and I have some things in common. We both like Marvel and things like that. We like hiking. Uh, But we have one key difference historically. I'm a much bigger nerd than he is. Now, Nick... Uh, in the past, has had zero in- interest in fantasy books, but I love Lord of the Rings, Brandon Sanderson, you name it, right? I, I go through several novels a year. I, uh, I, my car's named after characters from Lord of the Rings. It's a whole thing. And I've tried to get him to watch Lord of the Rings because it's baffling to me that someone couldn't like those movies. 
And every time I've been like, oh, we should watch that, he just rolls his eyes at me. He is not interested whatsoever. And already there, some of my defensiveness kicks in. Because how could this person not agree with me about this book series that I'm so crazy about? How could they not think this is great art? How could they not be interested in this? So recently, Nick finally agreed to watch the Lord of the Rings movies. And I got all smug at first, like, ha look who was right all along. Until he started reading things on his own. So two weeks later, he's farther along in the Lord of the Rings books than I've ever gotten. And he starts looking things up online, and he's telling me obscure facts about the lore, this actor and this actor being these other movies, these little nit, like niche things that I totally missed out on. And instead of being excited or interested, I was really annoyed. This is my territory. A part of me genuinely felt threatened and frustrated by, by him knowing more about this thing that I'd been excited about, this group I'd belonged to, this, this nerd realm that was mine. And he suddenly joins the club and thinks he can know more than me. We're currently racing to finish Return of the King, and I, I, I have to beat him. If I don't, it's, I'm gonna, I won't sleep for like three weeks. But we can be loyal to the silliest things, can't we? We can get hung up on these things that we identify with and that we give value to. And I get so worried about my status as a member of the nerd community that I miss out on this excitement that my friend's experiencing. But this is what we do. We ally ourselves with groups, with clubs, with political movements, more than we ally ourselves with God and his work, if we're not careful. We get defensive of things that, compared to the work of God and the gospel, are much smaller. Now, I'm not saying that we have to pretend that we don't belong to these different groups. We don't have to pretend that we don't have certain views or have certain affiliations. I'm well aware that I'm Brazilian. I'm well aware that I'm a nerd. But when we live in defense of our cultural affiliations, we raise those commitments higher than our commitment to Christ. C.S. Lewis once said that when first things are put first, Second things are not suppressed, but increased. What he meant was that when our commitment to God and his kingdom come first, every other commitment in, its, in our life will have its proper, beautiful place. Our roles in those communities will be beautiful and glorified and good. But when we live in defense of them, when we let them take over, when we let them be the first thing that we check ourselves against, they become twisted and we become twisted. Think about how quick we are to defend those that we have previously agreed with, whether from our political party, a friend group, without really taking the time to prayerfully consider what's in front of us. I know I get into that all the time. Just if the right person tells me something, I believe it. I don't care where they got it from. Uh, They've been right in the past. I've agreed with this writer before. I once had a pastor tell me early into my ministry experience to be careful which authors I quote. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, because, you know, give it two years, they'll say something heretical, and then you'll look foolish. And it's so funny, because I I love C.S. Lewis, but there's a few things he says that I go, whoa, you can't say that. And here I am quoting him left, right, and sideways. And then you get to a few things he goes and goes, ah, just no one look at that, right? We're just so quick to affiliate ourselves with someone. Think how quick we can be too easy to forgive and and forget major faults 
just because someone aligns with us in other areas. Think how quick we can be to defend ourselves when we're faced with new information. We've probably all had that feeling about 75% of the way through an argument, whether it's in person or on Facebook, where we realize we're wrong. And then we double down. <laughs> I, I know at home all the wives and husbands just looked at each other and like rolled their eyes, so you know, a moment for that. But we do this, right? We, we, we're fighting, we're arguing, and there's a moment of clarity where we go, oh, I didn't notice that before. And it's so hard to not defend ourselves and the statements we've made before and the people we've aligned ourselves with. The Pharisees and Sadducees were so entangled in defending their team that they missed out on the work of God. Paul's trying to point them to the resurrection of Jesus and all they hear is resurrection and all of a sudden they're fighting. They're tearing at each other's throats. In fact, the whole reason they've assembled Paul is it just goes out the window because all of a sudden it's about drawing this line between them. It's about doubling down. It's about defending their cultural affiliation. And they miss out on the work of God. Later on, some of these people and, and people around them would start to plot to get Paul murdered. Going against their own religious beliefs and their own values that they're fighting for just to defend cultural ties. Now, I hope we won't do the same. I hope we won't lose what God is doing in front of us, what the word teaches us, what we are called to out of fearful defense of our cultural affiliations. Finally, as we finish out the passage, we see a clear indication of Paul's posture. While Ananias is gripping on to his own agenda and the Pharisees and Sadducees are defending their cultural affiliations, Paul shows us a posture of surrender to God's work. After he's been carried away from this fight, it says in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Notice that Paul's going to have to give up his personal agenda and his cultural affiliations to join God in what he's doing. If Paul was worried about himself, about his own desires and what he wants, he would realize he's already been on trial two or three times. And so when the Lord shows up and says, just like you've testified here, you're going to have to testify in Rome, what that reads to me is, just like you've been on trial here, you're going to go on trial there too. That'd be more than enough to make me say, nah, I'm good. I'm the guy who turns away from a hike if I see one snake, you know? This is, this is what's not going to happen. But what follows in this chapter is Paul finding out about this plot to murder him and continuing to preach the gospel. He's not looking to go, oh no, what's going to be the safest for me? He's going, well, I, I can't get killed right now. I've still got the gospel to preach. He's giving up his own agenda. He's joined God in God's work, in God's agenda, in what God is doing. And if he was worried about his cultural affiliations, the groups he belongs to, he'd still be back there with the Pharisees meeting the Sadducees in the back parking lot after five. Making sure his membership card isn't revoked, making sure that people still liked him, accepted him, wanted him around, making sure they still respected him or thought of him a certain way. Because he spent years of his life investing in the role he had in this religious community. And to testify to Christ was throwing so much of that out the window. 
that wasn't as valuable to him. Paul lets go of his tight grip to his own claims, and he quits defending all his cultural affiliations because he's concerned about one thing, open-handed surrender to the work of God. Because Paul has seen how good the good news really is. The Spirit has moved Paul to joyfully embrace the gospel and to joyfully surrender to God's work. And as the Lord himself stands by him, instructing him, Paul meets him with open-handed surrender. And the call for us is that the good work of God is still happening even in difficult seasons. That the call to love our neighbor as ourselves to be the church active in real ways is still before us in this season. And we can meet that with joyful surrender. In the church I grew up in, my pastor used to tell the story of a little girl and her necklace of pearls. When this girl was very young, her father gave her a simple necklace of fake pearls, and she loved that necklace. It was her favorite. And on her 13th birthday, after opening all her presents, the girl went to thank her dad. And he had a hand behind his back and he said to her, I just want to ask you for one thing. Would you give me your necklace of pearls? The girl became very sad and said, no, dad, I want to keep it. I love that necklace. So he smiled and he said, okay. Years later on her 18th birthday, the father approached the daughter and said, I want to ask you for something. Would you give me your pearl necklace? At this point, the young woman had stopped wearing the necklace, but it was a prized possession. She kept it hidden in her room. She begged her dad, no, I I don't even know why you're asking me that. Let me hold on to it. Finally, a few years later, on the night before her wedding, the dad pulled his daughter aside and said, sweetheart, today's the last day before I give you away. Would you please let me have that necklace? She had tears in her eyes, but she she could tell it meant a great deal to her father, so she went and got it. And she said, all right, I'll I'll leave it with you. And as she held it out to him, he extended from behind his, his back a necklace of real pearls. Beautiful, priceless, and held them out to her. I wonder what good gifts we would find that God would give us if we would open our hands to him. And the reality is, even as I say that, we recognize that he's already given us all his goodness. He's already given us so much of his grace. And as he's trying to display it before Ananias and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they're caught up in everything else, I wonder if we could open ourselves to the very gift of God that he gives us each day. The renewed grace of Christ. And if we trust that his plans are better than our desires, our agendas, and our ties, what we could open ourselves up to joining him in. If we could be more loyal to him, than any other commitment, any other idea. So today the invitation is for us to surrender to God's work, to the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, as unlikely as it may seem, as uncomfortable as it may sometimes be, to offer us life and to follow him as obedient friends and followers. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that there's not like an exchange here of we're going to give you something so then you're going to give it back to us. 
but of the goodness you've already given us, of the, the grace you've already poured out on us, of the gift of Jesus that you've already extended to us. I ask, Lord, that you would give us surrender, that you would give us open hearts to your work in our own lives, in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.